Welcome to GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy in South Florida. And I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Quarks and Conversation episodes. And don't forget our Words in Progress episodes where we have fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us for today's episode. Welcome to our March Crime Book Chat episode. Yes, Kathy, I really love these episodes because it's such a mix of authors and genres. I mean, for today, we have widely different genres, I would say, from intense military thrillers to historical mysteries. But oddly enough, I found a connection that they all deal with large themes like terrorism and international intrigue. So at least we'll find some common ground there. I'm super excited about this too. And I want to give you props because this format was your idea last summer when you and I were talking about the season um, as a way so we could talk to more authors. And it's been such a fun um, platform because it's just been so great to talk to everybody at once. So I'm super excited about this today and it will be very informative and interesting, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Anyway, so let's get started with the introductions. I'll start out with T.R. Hendricks is a former United States Army captain who served as a tank platoon leader and then as a military intelligence officer, where he was an advisor to the Iraqi Ministry of Interior's National Information and Intelligence Agency, That's a mouthful. When not working or writing in his home in upstate New York, Hendricks is most likely reading, woodworking, or watching his beloved San Francisco 49ers. (laughs) The Instructor is his debut novel. So Tim, it's so great to have you here with us today. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about The Instructor? Of course. Uh, so so great to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for having me on and, you know, breaking in this rookie on, on his, uh, you know, <laughs> podcast route. But uh, yeah, I am the uh, the debut author of The Instructor. Uh, it's out April 11th, uh, 2023, just a few short weeks away here. Uh, finally, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> real excited it's gonna for it. It's going to be so exciting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm, it's, it's all starting to hit now. It's, it's all, it's all okay. coming to a head. But uh, the story centers around uh, Derek Harrington. He's a retired uh, Marine Corps officer uh, who now works as a wilderness survival instructor uh, running his own uh, bushcraft school in uh, just just outside of New York City, like in, in the Westchester area, Orange County area of, of uh, New York. And he's um, having a hard time. He's having uh, marital issues and money issues. And his, uh, his father is uh, sick and in need of long-term round-the-clock care. Um, and uh, running low on money and running low on funds when uh, out of the blue, one of his students uh, approaches him with a proposition to make $20,000 in a month uh, if he agrees to teach a private uh, group in upstate New York. And, and Derek, you know, uh, pressed uh, into the corner as he is, takes the job, only to uh, slowly pull the thread and realize that the group he is teaching has uh, more nefarious um, 
thoughts and, and an agenda that they're um, putting together. And he uh, basically believes that they're a domestic terrorist cell. And, uh, and from there, he has to uh, put all of his skill sets uh, into play in order to prevent an attack on American soil. So that it is sounds the, very, uh, very, very realistic and also very scary and yes. <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> yes, I love it's... the title too. That's just a yeah. great title. Thank I can't take the credit for that one. My my wonderful okay, agent, anyway. yeah. <laughs> my wonderful agent Barbara, uh Barbara Powell of IGLA. She she's like, all right, we're we're changing this title. I was like, oh no, you, <laughs> you you can't change my title because it's a series and there's this naming convention and I have all like four or five books all planned. And she's like, I, I this is literally what she said. You need to um take off your little like French beret artisan <laughs> hat and listen to me. Because I don't care what your naming convention is, the instructor is what's going to sell books. And I went, you know what, Barbara? <laughs> the instructor, it is. Good to go. Well, That's I good. so want to see you in a beret now. I just, yeah. I, just <laughs> I think I have my old beret lying around somewhere, actually. That's, That's awesome. Funny. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna. I I get the privilege of introducing Gary Grossman. His first novel, Executive Actions, propelled him into the world of geopolitical thrillers. Executive Treason, Executive Command, and Executive Force further tapped his experience as a journalist, newspaper columnist, documentary, television producer, reporter, and media historian. Besides the best-selling executive um, series, he wrote the international award-winning Old Earth, which is one of my favorites, by the way. Um, And that really is a geopolitical thriller that spans... A lot of time. Lots. And um, if you haven't read it, I would highly suggest you put that on your uh, list. He also has the Red Hotel series, um, which he collaborates with Ed Fuller on, who we're also going to introduce, but Ed hasn't joined us yet, but we're sure he's going to get here as soon as he can. And so they, they write this series together. Okay, so Gary, tell us about your latest with Ed and on your own. Well, uh, first of all, <laughs> Tim, I'm so, <laughs> I was so moved by your explanation on the title because I went through the same thing with the executive <laughs> series. I had another title and the publisher said, no, 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 it's going to be executive actions. The next book will be executive something. And the third one, executive something. The same way with the Red Hotel series with Ed Fuller. So I've been through that. And no matter how much we struggle over titles, we're not the ones really deciding. It's all about marketing. So they rely on us to write a good thriller. And what we try to do is um, know when to say yes, because they put <laughs> it down. So um, Red Hotel uh, is the first book in our Red Hotel series. Second came uh, Red Deception and now Red Chaos, all following a character who really is based on my collaborator, uh, Ed Fuller. Uh, I met Ed Fuller through a friend of mine, um, Bruce Fierstein, who wrote the first three James Bond movies with Pierce Brosnan. We were both walking our dogs and um, Bruce said, you've got to meet this guy. He's the former president of the Marriott International and he's got stories to tell. And I said, well, first of all, I haven't collaborated with anyone on books. I do for television, but I haven't on books. And second of all, what do I have in common with the former president of Marriott International, except for maybe my Marriott awards card? (laughs) And he said, you've got to meet with him. 
And I did. And with 30, within 30 seconds, I realized Ed was as much in the anti-terrorism business as the hotel business. Uh, Marriott and Ritz Hotels blown up in Jakarta. He had to get his team out of Cairo, the fall of Mubarak. Uh, likewise, out of Tripoli when uh, Gaddafi fell. So he had stories to tell. I write them. We, together, we collaborate them. I, my dog just walked in the room. I'm surprised he's heard these stories before. And, and Red Chaos in the third uh, in the series really continues to follow Ed's experience. Uh, I did ask him when we first met who he had on speed dial. And he said, well, maybe we work long enough and I'll tell you. Oh. And they are people within the CIA and intelligence organizations around wow. the world. And Red Chaos, and I'll do what you did, hold up a copy. Red Chaos is uh, already out in, uh, in Audible and um, in Kindle. And the print edition, uh, they're restocking Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now. But it follows, well, it follows a really bad guy in Russia who uh, is our stand-in for Putin. And he is somebody who is controlling the um, Northern Sea Route. Why? Because that's how he's getting oil to China. Money from China fuels our, our leader, our, our Russia's leaders, uh, exploits in Ukraine and in Eastern <laughs> Europe and elsewhere around the world. So it's a mix between what's happening globally, those butterflies flapping their wings in China, affecting what's happening in the United States with an assassin rolled in as well and uh, no good coming from Moscow. Wow. Our lead character is, uh, is the head of a hotel, is the international head of the hotel chain who does have those real contacts that Ed Fulker has. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yep. Um, so I, we'll, we'll, we'll get to talking about what it's like to work in a tag team, but I'm, I'm so fascinated by that too, and how you guys just found each other and, and thought, yeah, we can do this together, so. Love it. Thank you. Oh, I have a question for Tim. You say upstate New York. Where in upstate New York? I'm from Hudson in Columbia County. Uh, I, I, I will not. Um, the intelligence officer in me will not divulge my exact location, but uh, I will say that I am in the uh, Finger Lakes region. Oh, really? Upstate? Oh. Yes. <laughs> I'm ashamed. I'm not. No. Yeah, I mean, I and I grew up in Rochester, New York, which is even what? further wow. upstate. I know we've got a, we've got three upstaters here. Yeah. Outstanding. Oh wow. That's Good. another similarity. That's so crazy. So where's everybody coming from today? Well, you know where I know, and I, Gary, you're out in California. I'm in California. Yes, in LA, which uh, sees a lot of snow right now. I'm in South Dakota. Not as much same. as Kathy. She's in South Dakota. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Karen, where are you coming from? Arizona. Oh, lovely. Mm -hmm. oh. It's not snowing here, although it was last week. Was wow. it really? I, so strange. Everything's strange. <laughs> Everything is strange. <laughs> And Tim, you're in New York. Um, I'm still in New York, yes. <laughs> Trying desperately to get out of it, but yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> and I, I'm in South Florida, so no, we did not see any snow. Okay. It's record heat shoot, right now. So. Which she reminds me of almost daily when we yes, talk. Yes, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Anyway, let's get on with our introductions. And I want to talk about Karen because we were asking her questions, but nobody knows who she is. So Karen... <laughs> Auden is a USA Today bestselling author who received her PhD in English from NYU. 
which was where our sound engineer went, <laughs> writing her dis- dissertation on Victorian literature and taught at UW-Milwaukee before writing fiction. She sets all her mysteries in the 1870s London. Her fifth, Under a Veiled Moon, features Michael Coravan, a former thief turned Scotland Yard inspector. Mm. It was nominated for both the Agatha and Lefty Awards. Great. Karen lives in Arizona, where she loves to hike in the desert while plotting murder. So tell us a little bit more about your book. So, uh, well, first of all, just FYI, my last name is pronounced Odin, kind of like the uh, like the Norse god who ripped an eyeball out of his head in exchange for power. Okay. So just think okay. of that when well, you see I'll, me. I'm glad, yeah, that I, I'm glad that I said it wrong so that we had that memorable description <laughs> on the podcast. Awesome. So, so Miss Odin. Yes. So, uh, yes, as, as you said, uh, my inspector uh, is Michael Coravin, and he grew up, he is Irish. He grew up in the CD section of Whitechapel during the 1860s and 70s. Most people know Whitechapel because it's where the Jack the Ripper murders happened in the 80s. Ooh. And he... Uh, he, his mother vanishes, his father dies early and his mother actually vanishes when he is 11 and he becomes a thief on the streets and eventually a dock worker, a lighter boat worker, a bare knuckles boxer. These things are, some of this is very illegal. <laughs> um, and then he ends up having to flee Whitechapel. Uh, he's bare knuckles boxing and the, uh, owner of the bare knuckles club comes to him and says, you need to throw a match. And he says, why? I'm, I, I, I win all the time. He says, yes, no one will bet against you. And I'm not making any money. You need to throw a match. And Horovin is 19 and he gets in the ring and he means to do it. And he just can't bring himself to do it. And so um, and so the bare knuckles boxer you know, head of the gang throws him out um, and then and then uh, and basically threatens to kill him. And okay. so he flees, he, he flees across the Thames River and the Thames, you know, for me became the symbol of the divides Corvin's early life and his thieving and his bare knuckles boxing, all this, all this kind of thing. And his later life, he, he becomes a constable in Lambeth, a uniformed constable, and then eventually works his way up to being a Scot, uh, inspector at Scotland Yard. And the first book in the series, Down a Dark River, um, finds him at the yard and he is faced with a death of a a murdered woman who is beautifully dressed, um, young, lovely, and placed in a boat and sent floating down the Thames River. And that is the first book in the series. And then this is the second, and it was based on a true story. The good thing about Victorian England is there's so much terrible stuff going on that you barely have to invent anything. <laughs> and this, in this one, we have a steamship. Um, and I didn't, until I started researching, I didn't realize that there were steamships in London. I kind of think of that as a Mark Twain, you know, yeah. kind of thing uh, on the Mississippi, but there were, there's a whole group of them and they were like our hop on hop off buses. You could pick up a, a pick up a ship, you know, a steamship right by London Tower Bridge and um, for two shillings and ride all day out to the North Sea and come back. And one night in September of 1878, the little steamship, the Princess Alice, was coming around a blind curve and a 900-ton iron-hulled coal carrier rammed into it. This is sort of like an express train hitting a handsome cab. And uh, breaks the little wooden steamboat up into three parts. It sinks in four minutes and 650 people are in the water and nobody knows who they are. So that's how the book begins. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And then it goes on to some international intrigue. Well, okay, not all international. All her faces were all like... Oh. <laughs> 
I know. Oh. We're like, okay, this is not good. <laughs> We're talking Fantastic. big themes here. They, uh, that's a all yeah. of these stories are you know dealing with uh, with big themes, and so that makes us wonder. Like, you, you know, now Gary, you've told us that you based yours on Ed. And so I'm assuming that's how it grew into the big themes because he had those big themes. But like, Karen, how did you narrow down or did you just say, you know, I'm going to go big on this one? Or did you say, okay, I'm, you know, this guy's going global, sort of. Well, the I don't know whether this is kind of normal, but I, I often find that my books sort of begin with a moment of surprise, which was the discovery of Princess Ellis, which I didn't know anything about. I was halfway through writing Down a Dark River and I came across a mention of the most terrible disaster ever to happen on the Thames. And of course I had to Google that. Um, <laughs> and then together together with the incredible vitriolic, absolutely horrifying anti-Irish discrimination that I was finding in 1850s and 60s London. I mean, it was it was vicious. It was it was disgusting. And so you put those two things together. And what what I what I what my sort of my what if question was, what if the newspapers after this terrible accident happens? What if the newspapers jump to the conclusion that it's the Irish Republican Brotherhood? Now, this was a real group. Um, they did not, in fact, cause the disaster. But I said, what if the newspapers jump to that conclusion? It was a group that was trying to bring the Irish public parliament back to Dublin from London because the few Irish men in the parliament were not, I mean, they weren't able to make their voices heard. They were, they were a minority in parliament and, and English parliament was just not paying attention to Irish concerns, including things like the potato famine. So I, I put these two pieces together and, and I really wanted to talk about discrimination and I wanted to talk about media storms. Um, they, you know, mm -hmm. London had 1000 newspapers by the 1890s, and sometimes they were just picking up each other's headlines and reprinting them. This is, you know, the equivalent. Well, of that does sound timely, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tim, um, so this is your first novel and the, this is the first with this character. Um, how did, how did it come to you? And don't uh, well, tell us that you're like really him running some kind of terrorist group <laughs> <laughs> on the weekends. Again, I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, no, uh, the funny thing about uh, how Derek came to me is um, through a, a work colleague who is a retired Marine um, and is a wilderness survival expert. Uh, and we were just we're, we're two veterans just kind of sitting around the water cooler one day um, swapping stories. And he uh, relayed to me how he almost had his own show out in Hollywood, much like Survivor Man and Bear Grylls and everything. Um, but the producers kept wanting him to divulge his uh, stories from his top secret classified background, and he refused to do it. Um, so they said, well, with, without those stories, you're just a, a house dad that, that teaches survival. That's boring. So I told him, I said, you know, if, if you need a backstory that you could kind of pitch to these guys, that's really interesting that you could say like, well, you know, it wasn't really me, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It might've been. I'll write you a backstory. And, and, you know, it was just kind of a, 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 a toss away thing because I was just 
I, I was writing fantasy at the time and I was dabbling in short stories. And I, and I said, I'll just, you know, I'll write you a, a 5,000 word short story that you can use as your back, uh, your backstory pitch. Awesome. And um, 90 days and 90,000 words later, uh, there was my, my first draft of the instructor and, and uh, the rest, as they say, is, is history. So wow. That's, wow. that's how, that's how the character came about in terms of like the themes um, you, you know, that there, I think international terrorism is, uh, well covered in the thriller genres and especially in the military thriller, uh, subsector. Um, but domestic terrorism is something that I think we here in America have only really, uh, experienced in limited, limited, um, quantities, you know, mm -hmm. Oklahoma city comes to mind and, and, mm -hmm things along that nature and, and a testament to our intelligence and law enforcement services that have, that have kept that yeah. from us. But there's this uh, kind of, you know, obviously a wide divide in the country and, and this uh, mm -hmm. also theme of uh, military veterans that are uh, disenfranchised after the Iraq-Afghanistan wars and are mm -hmm. um, primed for extremism and, and being kind of turned against the country that they once served. And I just thought, what a, a wild concept would be to put this right in our own backyard and, and really pit Derek against uh, those same individuals that, you know, uh, might have at one time worn the uniform and swore to uphold the Constitution and now are dead set against uh, tearing it up and burning it down. And, and mm -hmm. that, that's, that's where I went with it. You know, I, find, I, I just love that story on how you started. That's often how it happens where somebody's like, you know, dabbling in writing and then all of a sudden they get some kind of fun spark like that. And now that makes me wonder, Gary, you're a few books in. What was that first spark in the first book? Well, it's an interesting story for sure. Um, I, by day, primarily, I've been a TV documentary producer, had a production company called Weller Grossman Productions. And we did tons and tons of shows for A&E and History Discovery, TLC, oh, National Geographic, and on and on and on. And my business partner and I were in New York, and I remember the date specifically, pitching to the History Channel. And someone at the History Channel said during the meeting, wasn't me, do you think we're running out of history? <laughs> I was somewhat flabbergasted, but I didn't want to show it so much. Uh, but I said, well, you know, of course we won't be. Who knows what's going to happen later today or tomorrow? I think what they were looking at was whether or not reality TV was going to come in. <laughs> well, I remember that date because that was September 10th, oh, no. 2001. No. And uh, two days later, Rob Weller and I were driving back to California. We got a car out of Westchester County Airport, one of the few that were left, and started driving cross country. And I thought, well, if that plan took however long to matriculate for it to come together since the previous attack on the World Trade Center towers, what, seven, eight years? What about a plot that might take 25 or 30 years in the making? Mm -hmm. 
You know, we have the patience of a gnat compared to the Middle East and the rest of the world and China, which has, you know, I think a hundred year plan to really control everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't make a movie a hit over the weekend, it's gone. And I used to be a, a rock DJ. Uh, I'm not going to do the rock DJ voice for you right now. Well, maybe. If a song wasn't a hit, you know, right away, it's kind of off the chart. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what about a plot that might take 25 or 30 years? And what would be so important to wait for that? And I thought the presidency itself with a Russian sleeper cell spy taking over the White House. That was the subject of the first book, uh, Executive Actions. And after that, I was often running, thinking, I have to do this again? <laughs> I want a sequel? It was hard enough to do it the first time. I've got to do it again. And gradually, the books have taken over. The TV side has faded more into the background. I still do some. But for an origin story for me, it was, uh, how do I do it? How do I write it? And my whole, it still is today, and I, I'm impressed, uh, Tim, 90 days, first draft. I, know, that's I want to work up to that. My goal is three to five pages a day. And mm-hmm. it does add up, though. It, it really yeah, does Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. To be so, fair, I was, I was a man obsessed. Uh, I, I, I shunned all responsibilities and relationships during that time. So, people love hearing how writers write. I, I mean, I, Christy and I are both writers, and so we we love it too. But but our listeners who are readers and not writers, everyone loves to hear about how writers do the work. So, Tim, I'm, I'm going to throw it to you. Did you? What you did in that fever dream of those 90,000 words, is that, did any of that carry over into book two, how you worked? And do you have more of a pattern now or how do you, how do you write? What do you, what's your pattern? So uh, my, my two main um, approaches is one, I have to write chronologically from beginning to end of the story. I, I, I'm, I don't like doing the piecemeal grabbing scenes and then trying to mesh it all together. Uh, Hats off and all the credit in the world to authors that can do that. My brain doesn't work that way. Uh, The other part of it is uh, I write very uh, visually in that uh, I imagine myself sitting in a movie theater and the scene that I'm watching in the movie is exactly what's being put down on the page. So I will have maybe a, a level of detail in my in my movements and actions of my character because I want you to see the specifics you know n- not just Derek you know punches the guy in the head it's you know Derek throws a right hook and then ducks down and throws a left into the midsection and you know like I, that very specific uh, set now, because of circumstances and the way things were just kind of going in my life at the time, book two, I actually did write out of sequence. I wrote, uh, I did not write chronologically. It was complete departure from my process. Uh, And not only that, I decided to take on um, dual plot lines in dual timeframes where it jumps from present day to 2007 Iraq uh, between two different characters back and forth. So 
it, it was a hot mess. It was all over the place. It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, I, I have sworn off ever doing that ever again, but, uh, it, it was the most ambitious, uh, project I ever undertook. And, uh, I, I'm, quite happy with how it came out so far so you know fingers crossed that my editor thinks the same but uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but but yeah that that's that's my process and and how it translated from from one to two gary i saw you nodding um during part of the when you were talking about the cinematic effect I, absolutely. How, how do you write uh, yeah. i i try to write cinematically it's much of what my business is and that is uh, a feedback that i get from a lot of readers that it, it does feel like a movie. And, uh, and I talked about pace before, the pace of, of the world. Um, we're writing, I think, faster paced books these days than people did years ago, even in the historical genre. Be interested, you know, hearing what mm-hmm. Jeff said. So uh, that's really important to me as well. And working in multiple periods, I do that too. I go back and forth. One other thing, uh, I in terms of uh, process, in LA in particular, there are writers at every Starbucks writing. <laughs> they're doing their screenplays, they're working on their books. I have a rule, I do not write at Starbucks. <laughs> I do not. But there's a restaurant down the street called El Coyote. And I'll write there because they have margaritas. <laughs> and no matter what I'm writing, it just feels so much better. And uh, one day when I was actually rewriting there uh, in the afternoon, I saw another writer with a computer and we began talking and he said, you know, we're not the only two writers who have written here. I said, oh, who else? He said, in the golden age of television, Rod Serling used to come in here and write with his portable typewriter. No. So (laughs) I just felt. You're like, I've. It's hollowed ground. Yeah. Yeah. Better than that, a random star Starbucks for sure. <laughs> all right, Karen, we're all curious now. Talk to us about your your habits and and what works for you. And well, I I think it's very interesting that uh, all three of us write sort of cinematically. I think it must be an upstate New York thing. Um, so <laughs> so. I, I remember the very first time it happened, I was writing A Lady in the Smoke, which originally began as The Viscount's Daughter. I'm laughing too about your title issues because it was The Viscount's Daughter for a long time until it found an editor and who found a marketing team. And the marketing team said, absolutely not, no, that's a terrible title. It sounds like a <laughs> bodice ripper. Nobody will know how to pronounce Viscount. They'll say Viscount, you know, the whole, anyway. We went through so, we went through no joke, 20 titles. And it got oh to the point where my agent, Josh, was like, oh, just call it Choo Choo Go Boom. That's what I'm going to call it from now on. <laughs> this way he still calls it. But the very, very first time I had that sort of movie sensation was when I was writing that book. And I had probably, I don't know, I was probably on draft 50 or whatever it was. And I had my heroine, Lady Elizabeth, was walking into a room and Tom Flynn, my very pugnacious newspaper man, is standing there. She doesn't trust him because a newspaper man had ruined her best friend's life, basically. And he doesn't trust her because he knows she's lying about who she is. And she walks in and he's standing there and he's got his hands, you know, in fists in his pockets and he's around the back of a chair and she's around the, I mean, and I could, I watched them. I watched them move and talk and I just scribbled it down as fast as I could. Because at that point, you know, your character so well that they can, it's almost like a movie that someone else has produced Mm -hmm. and you're just sitting there scribbling. Um, And, and, and I, and that's a really 
marvelous feeling. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't happen. That's not like what it is all the time, but when it does happen, it's, it's, Mm. it's, you know, kind of in that wonderful zone you love. Um, But, you know, writing historical fiction, as you mentioned, I did my PhD in Victorian lit. I have a nice big foundation for Victorian, you know, fun factoids, historical tidbits, all that really good juicy stuff. And when I'm beginning a book, usually I just kind of keep digging sort of in that direction, find some curious thing like the Princess Alice disaster or um, a, a this enormous fire that raged in Victorian England for three days in Mayfair and destroyed $60 million worth of artwork. I mean, you find a factoid like that and I throw it in the pot and then I find some more factoids and I throw them in the pot. And then I throw in a couple of characters that I've been thinking about and probably some of my own, you know, baggage and backstory and throw that in there, you know, and then mix it around for a while. And usually I can get that first surge of 5,000 words and I know where I'm headed. It's the middle that takes the time for me. And I do have to write sequentially like you. I, I can't do this whole scrambled thing. I have some friends who write like that. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Do you all do, I find that I'm backfilling as I go forward, I'm often backfilling and putting seeds in that just, I didn't even realize, I I didn't think I needed, but a new character Mm -hmm. comes in, you know, it's like knocks on the door, says, Gary, move over, I've got something to tell you, (laughs) going with that, and then I realize I have to backfill. And that's yeah. magic. That's that's just a wonderful part of the creative process. No, it is fun right. when you have a new character that comes up and then you're like, oh, they could really do something back here. Let's throw them in, you know? Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Okay, so Christy, we're about midway. It's time for her. Christy has a lovely selection of random questions we call the question in the bottle. It's usually kind of a question you might want to get to at the bottom of a bottle. Which yes. we've done many times. <laughs> like scenes from a hat in uh, uh, whatever the, uh, what's the show? I'm blanking on it. Now it's oh. the first thing to go, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Whose line oh. is it? Whose line is it? Oh. Whose line is it? Okay. Well, this is, this is kind of a fun one. Not too hard. Would, would you rather run at 100 miles per hour or fly at 20 miles per hour? My, my first book was on the old Superman TV show with George Reeves. So I guess ever since I was a kid and put a cape behind me, uh, I'd, I'd want to fly. But t- aerodynamically, 20 miles an hour is kind of hard to stay up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you'd be like a hovercraft or something. <laughs> what about you, Karen? I think I'd probably like to run 100 miles an hour just to see what that felt like. Um, and and what what's just jumping to my head is so I hike and every every year there's a group of about twenty girlfriends and I and we do we hike the Grand Canyon down and up in one day, sixteen miles. Wow. It's 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 a it's a really big hike. It's because it's a it's one mile. It's five thousand feet drop and then five thousand feet back out. What a cool tradition. It's fun. Well, she's yeah. made, she's ex- explaining why it takes her whole day to do sixteen miles, and I'm like going, no, that that w- on level ground, it would take me a whole day to do sixteen miles. But there there are people who actually run rim to rim to rim, and and wow. I mean they don't do it at yeah. hundred miles an hour, but they, I mean they, sure? some of them are covering like fifty and sixty miles and oh in a day, gosh. and wow. I, yeah. so yeah. I think that's a little insane. Yeah, know. it is. Tim. Right, Tim. Um, so I, I'd fly. Um, I, I don't. I don't care about the speed because you didn't say anything about how high I could go. So um, <laughs> you know, if, if I just be suddenly 
cruising around the observation deck on the empire state building or, or the freedom tower, you know, and, um, that'd be great. The, the funny thing about that is that I'm, I'm deathly, deathly afraid of heights. And, and this is coming from a guy that is uh, paratrooper qualified. Um, yeah, I, 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 I did my, my five jumps and, and got my airborne wings and then resolved to keep my feet on the ground for the rest of my natural life. Um, but if I didn't have any fear of like falling to my death, then yeah, I'd just fly everywhere. It'd be great. I wouldn't yeah. be afraid anymore. How did you do that first jump? How did I do it? How? They pushed um, him probably, right? Well, <laughs> there's there's um, there's only so many windows on a military aircraft, so you, you can't really see what you're getting into until you're out the door. So okay. that was one part. Um, but the other part is um, the one thing I hate more than heights is losing. And, uh, it, it was a, it was a, indeed a challenge yeah. to, uh, and, you know, going into some other things, I was the, the number one ranked cadet in my ROTC program at the time. Mm. And I had a lot of, um, you know, people chomping at the bit to, to take that mantle <laughs> from me and, um, going out that door was, uh, was a way to ensure that I stayed on top. And so, uh, yeah, that that overrode. That's the, that's ultra competitive. I don't oh, care yeah, if yeah. I amazing. die, I'm yeah. gonna stay on I'm top. I'm gonna fall to Karen. So is was the first jump the worst, or is the second? Which was the worst of the five? Uh, okay, so I went um, four times out of a C-130, which is a propeller plane, uh, and my fourth jump was out of a C-141, which is a uh, jet engine plane a substantially larger jet engine plane and uh when i went out the door on the 141 um i actually mistimed my steps so instead of jumping out i kind of fell out the door and the power from the uh jet engine washed me back against the plane sent me tumbling uh and in military parachuting you have a, a rip cord so your your chute automatically opens uh and your reserve chute is what you would manually pull if you if you got screwed up well my chute got all tangled uh i fell like a brick um but they teach you how to like resolve these things so i'm, I'm sitting there untangling my chute just thinking nothing of it and everything and the first thing you do when you get your chute open is you look up to make sure there's no holes the, there's no wires broken and uh i look up I'm like, okay, everything looks good. My shoot looks good. I look down and there's the ground. And just wham, just uh, just hit it like going. I, I opened it just enough to not cause any severe damage, thank God. Um, but I did tear my meniscus in my right knee when I hit. Um, but the funny thing about airborne school is um, they say that in order to get your wings pan pinned on you, um, you have to just exit the plane five times. Um, so it doesn't really matter what your, what your status is when you hit the ground num on number five, uh, you you've qualified cause you've gone out. Mm. So, uh, I, I basically had my buddies in the class hide the fact that I had a torn meniscus in my knee and, um, they, they kind of like surrounded me as we ran to the airfield the next morning. And uh, yeah, I jumped with a, with a torn knee and, and got my wings on the fifth one. So 
um yeah like there's like no said, way i would uh, yeah, high, highly competitive and very determined <laughs> at, at the right young <laughs> age of you know 19 I, years I old i'm enjoying watching all of our faces as you're telling this story we're all like i mean we're all just yeah pain. i mean you do you do crazy things and thank you for your service oh over thank you i and appreciate over that over again i don't even know that seems just ridiculous. just listen to play back that paragraph that was i'm falling like a brick and looking up and thinking nothing of it yeah yeah uh wow and then it's a wonder that you write cinematically the, the, the guys and gals absolutely. were actually uh yelling at me pull your reserve pull your reserve but i just i didn't i didn't hear them i was just focused are you on naturally that. a very calm person oh uh, sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh okay well, i mean uh, that was yeah. wild mm. <laughs> great, great question christy okay <laughs> oh man okay so i'm um, back to writing so I would love to know, you're all in different stages of this lovely endeavor. What about the writing life or publishing part of the writing life has um, surprised you the most or been the most joyful and what has been the most challenging? Karen, why don't you start us off? The most joyful is actually pretty easy. I have met some astonishingly warm, generous, smart, fantastic people doing this. People who invite me to their book clubs, or I, I mean, I actually did a, a luncheon today. I was the keynote speaker for this author's luncheon, um, librarians, booksellers, I mean, all, all different kinds of people. And um, and I have a, I've met enough authors that I have five beta readers. We kind of ex all exchange work and that makes me feel very, I feel very supported uh, by them. I think the thing that's been that's been difficult for me is that I was orphaned twice. So I was orphaned. My my editor um, at HarperCollins left for her dream job at Hachette. I certainly don't blame her, but um, and so that was sort of the end of that. And then um, most recently at my current publisher, uh, I was I was brought in and and my editor left and took a different job. And that's that's hard. You know what I what I tell you know emerging writers is you know obviously the, you know these things just these things happen and and you just got to kind of keep remembering that I'm writing because I love writing and I'm just going to keep on writing and mm -hmm. um, you know after after my editor abandoned me at HarperCollins I that was when I came up with the idea for Inspector Corvin and it felt like the most solid idea that I'd ever had. So, you know, sometimes the, sometimes the, um, you know, having to, you know, feel like, like you're pushed all the way back to go to start, you know, and, um, but sometimes it, it works out. And I think that, I think the big thing is just to keep on writing. Okay. Good, solid Gary, advice. How about you? I, I, as I even tell my students, um, and I teach uh, writing at Loyola Marymount University out here in LA, uh, a couple of classes a semester. And if, if um, I were to think about having to write a book, it would be impossible. How could I write a 400 page book or a 350 or a 500, whatever it is, it's impossible. I can't even imagine doing that, but it goes back to what we talked about before. It's how much you can write in a day and how much you can write in a week and a month and how it begins to add up. And that's one of my processes in, in terms of thinking about it. The other is I work on multiple books at the same time, which is just nuts. 
I do have to make sure that a character in one doesn't pop up in another. Uh, but, uh, it, it, and the thing that I find that works for me, and some of them are nonfiction and, and, and others are fiction, are fiction, I work in different rooms so that the characters and the stories, there's one set right here where I'm working in my office, I'll work in the living room on another, I'll work in the guest bedroom on the other. My wife is wondering, <laughs> do we have any rooms that are still ours instead of all of them <laughs> being yours? But that's, and Stephen King, I understand, does that too. Um, it's about the only thing I have in common with Stephen King. Very, very successful. Uh, maybe he, has a margarita once in a while but uh, <laughs> but that's one way i honestly am able to keep things straight um and it's just kind of putting things in a box and figuring out okay i'm doing it's like i'm going to a different office so that's mm -hmm. part of the process for me and in the case of working with ed fuller in the uh, red hotel series and particularly red chaos which is out now uh we talk about story uh, we talk about plot development, then I do the writing, and then he wants to see it. And often I'm saying, can you wait? Can you wait? Can you wait? Because I want to fill in more or, I, you know, want to rewrite. Yeah. But it's the collaboration where then he says, oh, I've got another story to tell you. Let me tell you how I how, how people uh, were saved from these terrorists when we hid them in dryers in a hotel. Oh, wow. From, from terrorists coming into the hotel. That's going to be in... Red Ultimatum, the fourth book. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's, I mean, the stories are wild and that's what my inspiration comes from. I'm also with Karen. You find a nugget in history and you go with it. And it's mm -hmm. so interesting that you can weave those things in. These are great questions. Mm -hmm. Love mm -hmm. it. I just want to add one thing to what Gary said um, that I think that that's that, that, you know, the whole idea of, oh, my God, I can't write a book 400 pages. And I think that that's one of the things that NaNoWriMo is good for, because oh, when yeah. I work with emerging writers, they say to me, oh, I only get to about page 20. I said, you know what? Do NaNoWriMo. You'll get 50,000 words down. Okay, they're not going to be 50,000 fabulous words, but you will at least have the experience. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and I think it works its way into your bones that by the end of the 30 days of November, you've got a stack of pages. And mm -hmm. you know, you're three quarters away there. You can you can you can finish it, right? You just just need another cup, like another 20,000 or so, and you've got a first draft of a book. And I think that that's what's I, I so I, you know I, I recommend you know writers who are having a tough time kind of getting over that hump. I recommend that. Huh. You know, it would work even better is if they paid you at NaNoWriMo. Oh, that would be nice too. Because yeah. <laughs> I find that I, I like the premise of it, but I always don't make it past, like, say, November 5th. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's hilarious. All right, Tim, give us your your the pros and cons of, of your new endeavor here. Uh, so, uh, and, and I second Karen's uh, sentiment there. I'm a, I'm a nano uh, veteran myself. So, um, oh. and, and actually, believe I worked on the instructor, um, at least expanded it um, during that time period, uh, one of them anyway. But um, so the the joy of where I'm at um, is, is just the sheer fact that I'm here. You know, the, mm. the, the fact that I, I often say to people, I had uh, three dreams in life. One was to be an army officer, uh, two, to be a father. Uh, and three to be a published author, um, and you know the 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 second one being a father that that's more of the dream, but but um, which of course I I 
you know, uh, I have two beautiful daughters, so that that dream came true. But um, the other two, while they're dreams, they also doubled as goals, you know, uh, like I could, I could tangibly achieve those, um, you know, who, who knows whether I would ever get married and have kids, you know, but, but in terms of becoming an army officer, in terms of becoming a published author, as long as I put the work in, uh, I believe that I could get there and I could, I could get to both. And having the feeling of achieving one of those dreams, uh, well, now, well, now all three have been achieved, but, you know, that to me is the most um, absolute joyful thing about this, this whole process is just, I, I always said, I want to see my, my book, even if it's a one-off, even if, if people read it and say it stinks and this guy's, you know, never going to write another book in his life, <laughs> whatever. I, I, my book was on that shelf, you know, and, and for posterity, people will be able to say, wow, you know, Tim Hendricks, I, he, he wrote that book that's on, that's on the shelf. You can find it. It's in a library somewhere. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's it kind of like immortalizes you in a way. And, and uh, I, I've just been enamored with that my, my whole life. So uh, mm -hmm. again, four or five weeks away from it becoming, you know, a reality. It's, it's just crazy. To me. <laughs> um, in terms of challenges, and I'm sure my, my, my fellow authors here can, <laughs> will, will back me up on this one. Um, I was just blown away by how much non-writing stuff you have to do to be a writer. Yeah. I mean, website design and social media marketing and, and writing blog posts and doing newsletters and everything and just constant commitments to the point where it actually infringes on your time doing the writing. Um, so you have to be very disciplined in that approach. And, and luckily I'm, I'm good at like task prioritization and finding the time even now with like life being as crazy as it is, being able to you know, organize and find those pockets where I can sit down and knock out a, a thousand words or whatever. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really kind of a surprise, you know, the, the rookie debut head in the clouds writer was, was very much like, oh, I'm just going to write a book and it'll be beautiful and wonderful. And then, and, and they'll, and they'll publish, you know, and I just, I'll turn it in and I'll never have to make edits because they have people that just do that for you. And then right? I, I really like, I mean, it, it I, I thought going traditional, it's like, oh, well, you know, you just write the book and then an editor mm -hmm. edits it for you. And then, and then a publicist publicizes it for you. And then, <laughs> right. like, and then they're like, no rookie, here you go. You know, you, yeah. you, you got to rewrite Here's your list of podcasts. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're going to read this thing 7,000 times. You're going to rewrite it 5,000 times. I know. Um, and all while you're doing that, you're juggling everything. I say that with a grain of salt because it, it's all part and parcel to um to getting here right to to, mm -hmm. to the joy part of it you know like that's the work in today's day and age that it takes to be an author and uh if you're willing to do it i think you can get there so uh, is it challenging yes is it worth it a hundred percent absolutely mm -hmm. Good. i love hearing the joy i mean when you talk about that achieving mm -hmm. that that dream and that goal that's what people want to hear. And then the fact that that is your experience, even with the realities, it's, that's really lovely. 
Yes. It's magic seeing your book on a shelf. It's absolute magic. You feel like a, a kid in a candy store. And and we are because you want to enjoy that part of it. Mm -hmm. Tim, you were so right. When we're writing, we need to be promoting. When we're promoting, we need to be developing. When we're developing, we need to be researching. And then we still have to write again still yeah. or today. Yeah. Yep. There's not enough you know, hours I in the day. I was just on vacation at a, a very warm place, not at all like the snow that is coming here, um, a beach vacation. And I hadn't been for a long time because of the last few years. And I was so thrilled literally to see every single person around that pool or on the beach with a book. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't on their phones. They were reading books. And I, I just thought, Either, either I found my people, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I just, it was so cool to see everyone reading. And I thought how, that's why, that's why writing is so awesome. Right. So, right. so someone is on vacation, they're taking the time out of their life to take a minute. And what are they choosing to do is to have their adventure that a writer is giving them. And I just, I, it, it renewed my joy of why um, I, I would like to be a published writer and why we love talking to published writers because how cool, right? Like that's, that's mm -hmm. what they're choosing to do during that special time of their life. Try, you know, I just thought that was really fun. Yeah. It was great. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the most literary resort I've ever been to. I don't know. <laughs> well, that, this has been very inspiring and, and I do have, we, we have like one, um, that's good <laughs> note, I think to, yeah. to end on but we have a final question that we've come up with and Kathy's <laughs> shaking her head I'm thinking maybe we start putting these together and I will write the book this will be an inspiration <laughs> but anyway Kathy and I this is the premise Kathy and I are starting a crime fighting team and we want you to offer us one of your characters for a spot on our GOB squad here, we're and you know which would um, you volunteer, and what would their role on the team be? And you could kind of like, sometimes we can get it like where we're kind of complimenting each other. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make uh, Gary go first on oh, this. God, <laughs> that gives Tim and Karen more time to think about this. Thanks a lot. Well, I, I'm a big believer. Uh, I, I love James Bond. I love um, uh, uh, Jason Bourne. But my dad was in law enforcement. My mom was in politics. And I firmly believe that we're not in a single hero world, that it does mm -hmm. take somebody who knows something to tell somebody else who knows something to tell the others and to convince others to make it work. Mm -hmm. And 9-11 probably would not have happened if, if, if people who, you know, you're running a uh, flight school and somebody comes in to say, oh, I'm interested in knowing how to fly a plane. I don't care about landing it. Would that set <laughs> off alarms, you know? Yeah. Um, so I believe it takes, it takes a real team. So I will give you Ed Fuller, former president of American <laughs> International, because you'll probably get free hotel rooms. Every I would year. love that. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay. He's has to obviously have the best stories. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Yeah. And, and he's, and he's hiding from us right now. So yes. he's very good at being <laughs> secretive. <laughs> Okay, Tim, what can you add to us? We've got we've got the hotel rooms. Um, okay. <laughs> um, 
I mean, that there really is only one option and, and I've got to give you Derek. I mean, yeah. um, thank you. Derek <laughs> is a um, former Marine force recon. So he's a special operations veteran. Um, he's a qualified human intelligence and counterintelligence officer uh, with real world experience. Um, he's built like a linebacker. So, um, you know, and, and is he and, single? That yeah, might help. He, he, okay. he is, he's, he's divorced, you know, so he's got a little bit of that baggage, All right, but there, you know, there um, you go. I, this is rounding out the book for me, but, there you but, go. but yeah, you know, he's, he's a handsome guy. He, you know, he's got a pension, so, um, he's, he's, he's good to go. Um, and, and then, uh, um, rounding it out is, uh, you could just basically drop them in the middle of the woods and they'll be able to live off of, you know, bark and tree sap for weeks on end. So, I mean, but he won't need to because yeah. he will be with us. Well, and right. Yeah. So you, you guys, well, can, sadly you, know, be with him. you know, so, uh, oh, yeah, that's true. He, but if he, we have to, yeah, he, he's your, um, he's your Swiss army knife. So, okay. so, they, well, so there you go. Sounds good. All right, Karen, round us out. Who else can we have? Well, okay. So the problem is that Inspector Michael Corvin, um, his his director at one point said, "You have all the tact of a rabid bear barreling through the woods." <laughs> so I think that my uh, protagonist and your protagonist, Tim, might butt heads. So what I, the person mm -hmm. I'm going to give you is Belinda Gale, who is Michael Corvin's love interest. She is a woman novelist based on one of the women I, well, actually three of the women that I wrote about in my dissertation. Um, there were women novelists supporting themselves by the pen at this, at this time. Okay. And she is the EQ to Corvin's street smarts. She's oh, insightful. So she'll be she a is a little bit of a spy, maybe. <laughs> well, she's she's just very aware of the importance of things like listening carefully, empathy, paying attention to things people don't say. So I'm gonna give you Belinda. All right. Ooh, that sounds like that. a really I we're gonna solve the crimes, Kathy. <laughs> we're gonna solve all solve all the crimes. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Thank okay, you guys. So um when our when our listeners want to hear about you. Where should they go? And we'll start with Tim because his book birthday is next week. Uh, yeah. Is it? Or no. Shoot. Three weeks? Oh. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. It, no, about like, yeah, three, four weeks. Okay. But who's counting? Um, <laughs> I think you are. <laughs> so uh, you can find me at uh, trhendrixauthor.com. That's my uh, website. And I'm uh, pretty decent on social media. I'm on Twitter at TR underscore Hendrix. I'm on uh, Instagram at read TR Hendrix. And uh, my daughters um, love to make fun of me, but uh, they, they got me onto TikTok. So I am also <laughs> on TikTok um, doing embarrassing videos of author stuff. <laughs> Uh, I don't lip sync or dance, so you don't have to worry about that. But uh, yes, that is, uh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. They'll 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 goad me into that one too. Um, <laughs> but uh, that is also the same handle as my Instagram at Reed Tr Hendricks. So uh, drop on by. Love to hear from you, and uh, hope you enjoy the instructor. All right, Gary. How about you? Where they, where, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at uh, RedHotel.com. Not the Red Hotel, but redhotel.com, and that's for all of the books. Uh, Instagram is Gary Grossman One, and uh, likewise for Twitter, Gary Grossman One. I've not jumped into the TikTok uh, mm -hmm. uh, realm yet. 
Um, but I actually, in what I'm writing now, have a comment um, about TikTok from a member of the uh, Chinese government who seems to know a lot about one American in particular and recommends that maybe it's because of uh, a social media oh. um, <laughs> address that you have. So maybe we should uh, avoid TikTok. You're yeah, saying. <laughs> uh, plus all the all the videos for for a year for a year uh, I produced America's funniest home videos, so I don't <laughs> need to. Uh, I don't need to be making them myself now, but uh, oh, I yeah. love watching them though on TikTok. Yeah, they're still so much fun. <laughs> In fact, I'm doing a, a a biography of the producer, a nonfiction book on oh, Devona. Great. But uh, okay. uh, redhotel.com uh, is awesome. the place okay. to reach me. Awesome, Karen. It just my website is www.karenodden. It's K-A-R-E-N-O-D-D-E-N.com, and uh, you can connect with me, my social medias and okay. everything is all there. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have not made the jump to uh, TikTok. It kind of terrifies me. And, uh, <laughs> but, and, and also I just wanted to mention, I do have a newsletter um, that oh, I would love oh, for you to, um, to subscribe. I only, it only comes out every six weeks. It will not clog your inbox. I promise. But it always includes a book giveaway an essay by another woman writer. It's sort oh, of my way of cool. supporting nice. my community. So if anybody would like yeah. to um, chime in for that, it's also filled with like historical factoids. You can and find that um, and... sign up on your website, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Just click Perfect. the subscribe button. We'll put we the links always, on our... um, I always, we always recommend everybody sign up for any, any of your favorite authors' web uh, newsletters because mm -hmm. that's, then you have that direct connection to them mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. a big deal. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks you guys. This has just been a joy. Yes, thank so you wonderful. so much. I think uh, all we have to do is say what? Cheers and cheers, cheers to yeah. much success and Yay. lots of books cheers. on the shelf. Cheers. <laughs> and uh, I think you. we have to declare Tim the winner, uh, knowing he likes to win and needs to win. So, <laughs> Tim, I Jimmy bow to you. Today. And Karen. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> The competition was fierce. Yeah. But, but yes, I, I appreciate Gary, you're that, so, Gary. You're supposed you. to have said that with your um, your radio voice. Well, yeah. we got a winner today here. Let's see. It's a listener <laughs> named uh, Tim Hendricks. Tim, where are you from? Are you a first-time caller? First time, long time. Uh, calling from the uh, Finger Lakes region, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was really, yeah. really happy to be call number nine. And let's say a giant shout out to uh, Northern New York for giving us these great authors today. Yes. And we should call a tourism board or something. I don't know. I know. <laughs> I'll link it on our social media. Yeah, there you go. All right. Best to you all. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Appreciate Bye -bye. it. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.